This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for February 4th, 2019. In this show, I'm talking again to a podcaster who tries to make sense of what the US government actually does, what it does wrong, and what can be done about it. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. In a few minutes, we'll have this. Do you think that um, President Trump, for example, with the trade war with China, he's tried to bring jobs back home, hasn't he? Yeah, I think so. I think an interesting way of trying to do so, and it's trying to go back to a model of manufacturing that I'm not sure you can bring back, but is he trying to do that? Yeah, I think so. That's coming up shortly, but first, a lot of people are kidding themselves. We have two rival presidents in Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, the elected president, the successor to Hugo Chavez. I won't go so far as to say democratically elected, but elected. And Juan Guaido, the Speaker of the National Assembly, who has declared himself interim president. He's been supported strongly by the current U.S. administration, despite the fact that he has no constitutional legitimacy at all, and to a lesser extent by the EU and other Western countries. People on the left have been calling this just another U.S.-backed coup in Latin America, and there is some reason to say that, but they are kidding themselves if they think that it is the only thing that's going on here. People like UK Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn, who tweeted in 2013, Thanks Hugo Chavez for showing that the poor matter and wealth can be shared. He made a massive contribution to Venezuela and a very wide world. Maybe not quite. Whatever about the aims of Chavez and his successor, the economics have been a catastrophe for the country. 90% of the people live in poverty. And the average Venezuelan lost 11 kilos, that's 24 pounds, in 2017. Get that, people on average lost enough weight to make themselves a Weight Watchers star just because they can't afford food. That's a disgrace in any country, but for the nation with the world's biggest oil reserves, that's an outrage. It's said that no society is more than two missed dinners from anarchy. So with years of the whole population going hungry, anyone saying that the current crisis is all down to American propaganda or destabilization is kidding themselves. But they're not the only ones. We've had a lot of guff about free elections and democracy, but anyone who thinks that the only motivation the West has is fostering democracy is really kidding themselves. Marco Rubio let the mask slip a little when he tweeted about how important Venezuelan oil is to Valero Energy and Chevron, and, perhaps as an afterthought, to oil refining jobs on the Gulf Coast. The US administration is bending over backwards to encourage a military coup against Maduro, and I've no doubt if he falls, a lot of people, most people in Venezuela, will cheer. A new government might even make life better. It could hardly make it much worse. 
but the US strongly supports murderous authoritarian regimes such as Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan, which are ranked much lower than Venezuela on the World Democracy Index. They're not encouraging the people in those countries to rise up and overthrow their government. They're not openly inciting a military coup there. The difference is, as Marco Rubio said, the importance of keeping the Venezuelan oil flowing to US oil companies. If you think that the motivation is democracy, then you're kidding yourself. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line now, I have Jennifer Briney. Jennifer, I've talked to before. She's the presenter of the Congressional Dish podcast. I think that Jennifer is a bit of a softcore liberal. She might deny that. Um, but Jennifer, how do you feel about how politics are going in the United States today? Well, at this point, I'm glad that our government is open. <laughs> I mean, that's how low the bar has been set. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been a frustrating few years. But now I'm actually a little bit more excited that we have divided government just because the legislating is going to come to a grinding halt. And based on what I saw in the Republican Congress, I think that's a good thing. So I'm actually more optimistic now than I was just a couple months ago. Okay, I think you've outed yourself as being a bit of a liberal there, but I don't think you know anybody could accuse you of being being a, a, a hardcore leftist. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was because I was talking to Graham Elwood, who probably would jump at being labelled a hardcore leftist, and yeah. I'm I'm. <laughs> Seeing how there's a big divide, it, clearly there's a big divide in the US between people who support President Trump and people who don't. But there's almost as big a divide within the people who don't support President Trump. And clearly Graham L would be, would be on one side of that, that he is very annoyed with what he calls corporate Democrats, the sort of people who he, I think, almost hates more than Republicans. Do you think he has a point on that? Do you think they're just sort of messing it up and they should they should go for hardcore left-wing policies to try and defeat Donald Trump? Well, I mean, I think even just the framing of this as a division between Democrats and Republicans, and then there's divisions within the Democrats, I think what Graham and myself are highlighting is that the real divisions are between the people that are representing regular people, workers, those that work for paychecks and those that are working for companies and the, the people at the top of the shareholder chain that collect most of the money. Mm -hmm. That's the real division in this country. And because we keep dividing ourselves into red versus blue, Democrat versus Republican, that is what's doing us such a great disservice. And so when I look at the Republican Party, most of them and not all of them, but most of them are servants to the corporations. And then there is a divide in the Democratic Party that is much more visible because where the true representation of the workers exists, it seems to exist mostly in the Democratic Party. But there's still way too much of the Democratic Party that's pro-war, pro, you know, anything that helps the people at the top of the economic ladder make a buck. It's that's the real divide. So I don't even think it's an inner Democratic Party thing. I know that I know Graham. I, I count him as a friend. I think that he has plenty of problems with the Republicans, but they're just so obviously corporate where the Democratic Party, they run as the party of workers and then they govern differently when they have power. And I think this is going to be an interesting Congress to watch 
to see now that the House of Representatives is controlled by the Democratic Party, are they actually going to do what they run on and work for workers? Or are they going to serve the corporate interests that fund their campaigns? And so we're actually going to get a chance to see where the rhetoric matches the legislation this year. The sides are just wrong. (laughs) It's not Democrat versus Republican. The sides are wrong. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, maybe I should be more specific. How would you divide politics? Clearly, politics is a game of, it's an adversarial game. So there has to be a division. In your ideal world, how would you divide it? I would divide it between those that earn paychecks for a living and those that make their money in dividends. I think that's really the biggest divide. And I understand that a lot of us have 401ks. And I think that's how they trick us into thinking that most of us are in the dividend category. But most of us don't have enough money to really be in the stock market. The vast majority of us make our money because we work for someone else or we work for ourselves. Mm. Um, But there are people that make so much money, just unbelievable amounts of money in the millions and even billions of dollars in dividends. And those are the people that really have control of our government right now. And until we see that as the division and see how outnumbered they are, I mean, they have most of the money, that's true, but we have most of the people. By keeping us divided into red versus blue and liberal versus conservative, there are so many people that are are voting as if they're dividend collectors when really they're voting against themselves. So that's where my brain goes. And that's why I get irritated with so many people in the Democratic Party and most of the Republican Party because they're governing for the group of people that are the most wealthy in this world and leaving most of us out of their out of their legislation. You talk about that and clearly you're coming from and I'll allow you to deny it. I'm not saying that you're coming from a party like a left wing party point of view, but you're coming from a class analysis point of view. Yeah. Isn't it true that what has been called the culture war in America has proven that that may be a valid analysis, but it's not the only valid analysis because when a lot of people in the US, perhaps not so much in California, perhaps not so much in New York, but when a lot of people in the US see a rich person who says that they believe in, who says that they're pro-life and that they believe in God and family and the flag, and they see a person who earns a wage like them, who is perhaps more socially liberal, they identify more with the person who they share values with than the person who they share a class with. Yes, and I think that's one of the biggest problems we have in this country is that we keep focusing on those types of issues and we focus on what is said instead of what is done. I mean, what we just saw in the 115th Congress is a perfect example of that. There are so many Republicans that go to the places that are religious in general and Mm. they say, I'm going to ban abortion. It's my number one thing. Vote for me because of that. And the people that are against abortion, they think it's the killing of babies. You know, it's the most important thing to them. And I understand that. But then they get to legislate for two entire years where they have the House, the Senate and the presidency. And what did they do about abortion? Nothing, nothing. And they do this all the time. They don't want to solve these problems. Jen, that's not true. In fairness, with Roe v. Wade, Congress can't really legislate about abortion. But what they can do is elect a president who will pack the Supreme Court and try and overturn Roe v. Wade. And they've been working pretty hard at that. No, Congress has the power to make laws in this country. They don't have the power to overrule a Supreme Court precedent. No, Congress has the power to make laws in this country. And so if they wanted to change, if they wanted 
wanted to overrule Supreme Court precedent, they do that by making a law. Like I read legislation for a living and they weren't even trying. And I, I consider that a good thing. I don't want them to succeed in this endeavor. So don't get me wrong. In the US Congress, perhaps not, but there have been literally hundreds in the past decade or so, there have been literally hundreds of state laws aimed at chipping away abortion rights and doing everything that they can do to attempt to shoehorn laws into just about fitting in to Roe v. Wade and, for example, having extravagant demands for every standard you can imagine in in an abortion clinic. They've been trying very, very hard. On the state level, you're correct. So maybe that's a bad example, but I focus on the U.S. Congress. And so what I witnessed was the Republican Party having the entire government under their control. And what they did is they worked really, really hard to cut taxes on the rich. So they they do not do the things that they promised to do, because if they actually banned abortion in this country and they didn't have that issue to run on anymore, then they wouldn't have that issue to run on anymore. I'm saying that this is a way that they divide us and they run on things and then they do different things when they get in power. So like I said, like I don't focus on the state level. So that was one example. It was just one example that popped into my head. You know, they'll also they'll say, for instance, that we're going to bring jobs back to the United States and we're going to be there for the the manufacturers and the the workers. And Mm -hmm. then when they get in power, they cut taxes on the bosses and they try to take away health care from people. And like, so it's like they'll go out and they'll campaign on one thing and they do another. That's the point I'm trying to make. Okay. Do you think that um, President Trump, for example, with the trade war with China, he's tried to bring jobs back home, hasn't he? Yeah, I think so. I think an interesting way of trying to do so, and it's trying to go back to a model of manufacturing that I'm not sure you can bring back, but is he trying to do that? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Would you support him on that basis? It depends on how it's done. So just to say to bring jobs back, I mean, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't say that I support... Actually, I think it is one of the most misleading things he's ever said. But yeah, and it may be simply because he doesn't understand it. But I think within his understanding, he has tried to do that. And for example, every one of the hundreds of millions of iPhones in the US is made in China. That feels like allowing China to take over the US economy. In fact, the amount of revenue from an iPhone which goes to China is minuscule compared to what happens in the US. But Donald Trump, I think, is at least convincing a large chunk of the working class that he is representing them. You might argue whether or not he's doing it effectively. Yeah, but he has convinced a big chunk of the working class that he's on their side. And that's something that not all, but many, many Democrats have failed to do. It's true, isn't it? Yeah. And that's what's so frustrating because when the Democrats do get in power, they're not really helping the workers. So it's hard to be the party of the workers when you're really still passing laws that that benefit the corporations. I mean, the Affordable Care Act is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. The Democrats, when they had control of both houses of Congress and the presidency, instead of giving us a system where our taxes simply pay for medical care in the same way they pay for firefighters and policemen and other societal essentials. For some reason in this country, doctors, they aren't on the list. It's so weird. But instead of giving us a system where taxes make sure that everyone has health care, they left the private insurance companies and the pharmaceuticals in control of our health care system. And it's stuff like that where I am a paycheck earner. I am someone that didn't want to have to work for a corporation to get my health care. And the mm-hmm. only way I got out of this is that I got married. Otherwise, I never could have started this podcast 
podcast because I needed health insurance and I couldn't get it on my own. That's really where we're at in the United States. And instead of really fixing that problem for me, really giving me the freedom to leave my corporate job and be able to go out on my own and still have access to doctors, they created this incredibly expensive system where I still have to pay some insurance company that I have to call (laughs) and make sure I'm going to the right doctor or else my I could go bankrupt. You know, it's a crazy system. And the Democrats did that. And so those of us who are on the and not even on the lower end of the economic scale, because I'm fairly wealthy, but I'm not a billionaire and I could still easily go bankrupt because of this system. I look at the party that's supposed to be on my side and this is what they did. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the frustration comes from. Mm-hmm. Because we have one party captured by the corporations and we have another one partially captured and there isn't anyone representing us. I get where you're coming from on that. And I think that there's a lot in what you're saying. But one thing that really surprised me when I was talking to Graham Elwood, and you know, he's clearly a guy who's as passionate or more passionate than either of us. And he really hits the road every month trying to convince people the politics that he believes in. And I mentioned two women in politics to him, Elizabeth Warren and AOC. I'm trying not to be too clickbaity here. And I would have thought that, you know, these were the two women on the left of the Democratic Party. And immediately he was able to land on an issue that he disagreed with them on and regarded them as traitors. And I thought that, yeah, sure, you know, possibly, maybe you're right. But with that level of division, you can't achieve anything, can you? Yeah. And that's where I think we have a problem because there's not going to be any perfection, you know? So like when it comes to Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Warren, when it comes to banking, she's going to be a fierce fighter for us. There's other issues where I might not agree with her, but I have to appreciate that she's probably better than someone else that is in that position. So it's just, I feel like we have to get to know our representatives as individuals and figure out like, am I 70-30 with this person or am I 30-70? Because Mm -hmm. 100% is just such an unfair standard. And even the people that are setting these standards aren't going to agree with each other. So at some point Mm -hmm. we have to decide like, what's our number one issue? For me, it's war. When I look at my candidate, it's like, are you for overthrowing other countries or are you not? That's my number one. Other issues are further down my list. And you kind of have to understand that no one's going to be perfect and you have to rank, you know, what's the most important thing and what's further down the list that you can not agree with this person on and still have a better country at the end of these two years. Clearly, well, maybe it's not clear. So I'll ask you the question. Has political culture become much more toxic recently, say in in the past five, 10 years? You know, I think the way that news and politics are discussed, especially in corporate media, has become Mm. more toxic. I think the news has been replaced by politics because I think there's a big difference. I think the news is this is what happened today and politics is a a fight. Mm -hmm. And I also don't think that politics needs to be a fight. It it can be, how do we best solve this problem? And instead it's become red versus blue. Let's have two people and let's fight it out on TV all day. So that's toxic. Mm -hmm. Politics as a whole in this country, as someone who I don't really watch news, I watch C-SPAN most of the time. And then I go out in the three-dimensional world with actual humans. I'm finding, especially since the Trump administration started, that people just weren't aware. So before this, there were so many people that had lots of opinions about politics, but they weren't informed. People didn't know how the government worked. And they're now finding out about those details, whether it's because they're horrified by the Trump administration or they love the Trump administration. But it's such a polarizing thing and that people have just ended up more informed than they were a few years ago. So even though to watch what's happening, it seems so 
desperate right now. I'm actually never, I've never been more encouraged than I am because the people in my life that would never want to talk about what I do for a living are now asking me questions and really good questions. You know, like how does a bill become a law? <laughs> and I know that's Is there a so Simpsons basic, episode but- about that? Yeah, probably. I mean, The Simpsons is brilliant. But yeah, I'm getting that question when I'm out at bars. And I've never experienced this before to the point that I actually have to tell my friends like, hey, I'm off duty. Let's talk about this later. <laughs> this, this is a new experience for me. I started this podcast because no one wanted to talk about what's going on in the world. And now everybody does. And I think that's going to be good for us in the long run. And um, one thing that I mentioned, I think on a previous podcast was that two actual, I was going to say signs, they weren't signs, they were actually t-shirts, two t-shirts that I saw in photographs at Trump rallies. And one of them said, I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat. And the second one said, I'll say this slowly, the second one said, individual words, tree rope journalist, some assembly required. And it just struck me that there's such a visceral division. That's in no way, however horrible the sentiments are, those are not ideological or belief, you know, values-based sentiments. Those are tribal sentiments. Yeah. And one thing that I, you know, learned a long time ago, you can never defeat an irrational feeling with a rational argument. If America, if the United States is to become in any way united... How do you overcome that feeling? Well, I think the people that have picked their teams that see politics as sport deserve to be ignored. And the way that our system but they is still have currently... A vote. Oh, of course they have a vote. But the problem is because of the way our elections are running right now in the stranglehold that Democrats and Republicans have, especially on the way the districts are drawn, mm-hmm. there are so many districts that are considered safe where the problem that the incumbent sees is that they might get primaried from the more extreme wing of their own party. Mm -hmm. So everyone's playing to the most tribal. What we need to do is make it so that these people, in order to win, have to appeal to the sensible middle the reasonable Mm -hmm. people that do want to solve the problems. And I feel like if we can take care of the redistricting, which actually in the House of Representatives, there is a bill. It's a great bill. I've read it. It's HR1. So it's their number one priority in the Democratic House right now. Mm -hmm. It would solve that redistricting problem. It would take it out of the politicians' hands and put it in the hands of independent committees. That would go a long way. Is that constitutional for the federal government to do that, to overrule states? Yes, for federal elections. Yes, it is. So we can put those rules in place And then states get to determine how they kind of administer it. So the states would, you know, pick the people on the commissions, but we can set the basic rules. And the idea that they they have is that the independent commissions would have a block of people from the party with the most registered voters, a block of people from the party with the second most registered voters. So like, Mm. let's be real, that's Democrats and Republicans. And then an equal amount of people that aren't in either. And then the chairman of the committee would have to be from that group. So I actually really like the idea. And I think we would have more fairness in the drawing of districts. And that way we wouldn't have to play so much to the crazy people because a lot of us in the middle are just being completely ignored and because the Democrats are afraid of the really <laughs> extreme Democrats and the Republicans are definitely, and you can see it in our politics now, they're playing to their tribes. And we need to get away from that because there's a lot of us that aren't in either tribe and we're just left out of the process. You say, you talk about the each side being afraid of it particularly being primaried 
by the more extreme wing of their party. Graham Elwood, to go back to him, wasn't at all upset about that. And he thought that needed to happen more in the in the Democrats. And I don't want to ask your opinion specifically on that, but just on electoral pro- but just on electoral prospects. Do you think that the radical, more left wing Democrats, the type of the Alexandria Ocasio Cortez types? have more chance of going into a Trump majority district and taking it back for the Democrats than a moderate Democrat? I honestly don't know. I mean, when it comes to chances and electoral, I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm much more versed in whether this bill will become a law. But I mean, there's AOC, as she's become known. Yeah. No one two years ago was going to tell you that she had a chance of winning that primary. Mm-hmm. So I think anything's possible. And anyone who tells you it's not. I'm not really meaning mean to talk about the chance of winning the primaries. What I mean is, do you think that radical left wing Democrats have a better chance of stealing back Trump voters? than moderates. These, these voters seem to be perhaps more attracted to the radicalism than they are attached to a particular ideology. You know, I think it just really discounts individuals, you know, because there are people that voted for Bernie Sanders and then they voted for Donald Trump because they thought Lots Donald... Lots of people, yeah. Yeah, and I know some of them and they're extremely reasonable people and they did so because they thought Trump was going to start fewer wars than Hillary Clinton. So it's like it was such a nuanced decision for so many people. I don't think that they're drawn towards radicalism. I think that they had a bad choice. They didn't like the top two candidates. Mm -hmm. And so to say that, you know, to steal them back, I just everyone's going to make up their mind based on the choices that were given. And I think people make up their minds in very complicated ways. I don't think it can be that simple. I yeah, I don't know. I, I just know too many Trump voters who voted for him for reasons that were misinformed, some of them, but understandable. You know, they're not all fire-breathing racists. I don't know what's going to happen here, but I think we have to stop looking at each other as fire-breathing racists and fire-breathing liberals because it's just not that simple. Jennifer Briney, the presenter of the Congressional Dish podcast, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. Never miss a show. You can subscribe to the podcast for free using iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or any other podcast software or app. See challengingopinions.com backslash subscribe for details. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, and follow Jennifer Briney at Jen Briney and get in touch with us if you can suggest a guest or topic for a future show. Also, remember that I have a Patreon account. Thanks to the people who've signed up as patrons so far. I really appreciate that. More patrons mean that we can devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. And if you could join those patrons and support the show with a buck or two, you'll find all the details are on the website. And you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, your phone, or by email. It's all at www.changingopinions.com. The Changing Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. The assistant producer is Nick Albertson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>